0: From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, we know you personalize your entire day. That's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary.
1: Instead of costly private tutoring, IXL Learning can give your child the help they need at an affordable price. IXL is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. It's designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. And you get one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. There's a reason why IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Crime Junkie listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Crime Junkie. Visit IXL.com slash Crime Junkie to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hi, everyone. I'm Britt, the producer of Crime Junkie. And I think by now, most of you know that on April 25th, 2018, The monster known as the Visalia Ranzacker, the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, and most recently, the Golden State Killer, was apprehended and revealed to be Joseph James D'Angelo, a former police officer in both Auburn and Exeter of California during some of the time he was active as the Golden State Killer. To say that Ashley and I were ecstatic is an understatement. We knew you junkies would want our take on the case, but we also knew we couldn't do it justice in the time you'd want it. So we went to Mike Morford, one of the hosts of Criminology. We've been following season two of their show, covering the Golden State Killer, and knew that he'd be a great resource to get a high-level overview of this saga that came to a vindicated head this week. So with that, here's Ashley's interview with Mike.
2: Well, it's nice to, like, phone meet you.
3: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, a little different than playing, uh, you know, tag on social media, I guess.
2: (laughs) Tag on Twitter? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, So I'm a little less prepared than I wanted to be. It's been – we've never covered the East Area Rapist or Golden State Killer, whatever you want to call him. Um, And I I know about him, obviously, as much as, like, the layperson does. Um, So I was planning on doing a little bit of research to kind of help direct the call – um, but I wanted to get you when I could. So I'm hoping that you can kind of lead me through it. Um, everybody keeps, like I said, keeps asking for us to do this case, and I don't like doing cases that I think other people have done really well. I just think it takes away from our show and why do it when someone's done it better. So you guys have done like a really good job, and it's been your whole focus for a while now.
3: Yeah, I can, uh, I can walk you through as much um, as you need to know and try and give you an idea of, of the the basics of the case.
2: Yeah, if you wouldn't mind. I think that that's kind of what the listeners are hoping for, is, is a little bit of a narrative of a story for those who aren't as familiar. Um, I know for the full deep dive, I'm going to send them to your podcast. But if you could kind of give us a high-level overview of the kind of hit the story of the ECRA rapist and when it started, how he kind of transformed. And then obviously you and I are recording on the day that he was arrested, so this is kind of crazy.
3: Yeah, it's been been kind of hectic, but uh, I'll start at the beginning. You know, so back in June of 1976, um, in the town of Rancho Cordova, which is in Sacramento County in Northern California, uh, there was a rape and you know it was a, a weird rape in the fact that the guy came in he had a whole plan and and it was laid out well and he stuck to a certain script and did things in a certain order um and he succeeded and then there was a series of rapes in the town and the neighboring town afterwards and they started to be once a month and then a couple times a month and they just started going on and on and on faster and faster and He moved out of Sacramento County and into other parts of Northern California and other counties. And along the way, he had 50 rape victims over three years. And he moved down to Southern California after that, and that's when he started killing people. And they later on linked, you know, by a DNA the the Northern rapes with the Southern rapes and murders that he did down there. And that's sort of what led to the, you know, the DNA evidence that they actually used to to catch him uh, today.
2: So the attacks that he did in Northern California, did they know for sure that they were all connected? I know they were obviously scared of someone. Did they realize how prolific he was in Northern California, or was it not until the DNA?
3: Yeah, so in in Northern California, where he was known as the East Area Rapist, he started attacking the eastern half of Sacramento County, and that's how he became the East Area Rapist. And he had a very... Strict MO. He had a very unique signature. He would order, you know, if there was a male home with the woman, he would force the woman to tie up the male as he held them at gunpoint, and he would stack dishes on the male's back, and he would take the woman in another room and uh, rape her. And if he would tell the male, if I hear these dishes fall, I'm going to kill you and her. So he would do this, and he stuck to the script over and over and over again now sometimes when he would attack a woman by herself with no man in the house um he would use a knife as opposed to a gun um so he felt that he was able to control them a little bit better without needing to use a gun Mm. so the mo is very unique so when he did these different rapes you know he they people could tell you know it was him at these different attacks and all 50 attacks he would bound the the couples in a certain manner Sometimes he would go to the refrigerator and eat food right out of the refrigerator during the attack. Um, you know, so they started seeing all these different signs and questioning all these victims, and they all reported the same things. So they all, you know, they knew from the mo and the signatures which rapes were his and which ones weren't. And you know, he he basically got the fifty rapes, and they knew they had mm-hmm. you know the big problem.
2: And did he, if I remember correctly, from. Um, your earliest episodes this last season, he didn't start with couples, right? He actually kind of started with younger girls, if I remember right.
3: Yeah. So the the first victim was a lone female that was in her 20s. Um, she was home at her father's house, and he had gone on some family business for a month. So she had the house to herself. So he attacked her first, and the second uh, victim were actually sisters, he attacked them when they were home alone. He raped one of them. He didn't rape the other one. Um, and they were, again, they were teenagers. And then he would come back to the same area he did the first attack in, and he raped or tried to rape some teenage girls there, but their mom was home and fought them off. But after that, mm-hmm. it's, the victims changed. Some of them were in their 30s, um, and then one that was as young as 12 but most of them were in their mid to upper 20s, 30 years old. Um, so that's how he started with, with those. And again, if it came to where there was a man in the house, then those were typical married women or women that were old enough to have a boyfriend, mm-hmm. whatever, and mm-hmm. and those were typically older to where they could, um, if he was with them, he would feel the need to separate them and, and put those dishes on, on the backs of the males just to give them a, an alarm system, I guess. So that's how that came you know, the MO came to be.
2: Do people believe that he changed it as more of a challenge or just part of him evolving or what? You no, know, they
3: don't you know, they don't know it's it's an original signature, uh a very unique MO. You know, certain profilers have looked at hundreds of cases and have never seen that kind of, you know. Unique signature in in some attacks mm-hmm. where somebody stacked dishes on a person's back um, so it was a way of alarming him should something you know the guy try and make a move or something that was his way of of hearing it while he was out in the in the other room attacking the you know the woman um mm-hmm. so that was unique, and they knew that was unique, and that was one of the easy ways they would spot him when he did different attacks. You know, another thing was he would always tell the people the same line. You know, I'm going to just rob you. I'm going to take some money. I'm going to take some food. I'm going to go escape in my van that I've got outside. If you cooperate, I won't hurt you. And he told that to several people. You know, it was always the same script. And that's another way they were able to determine which attacks were his and which ones weren't. Um, so that was, it was all very unique, the signature and the script that he used.
2: And, um, there was, I don't know, I think it was the first one, if I remember correctly from your podcast, that he had actually been calling the girl before and after the attack. Is that right?
3: Yeah. So sometimes in the very first attack, you know, she would see a car driving by her house frequently. And when she looked out, the person would look away and then she started getting phone calls and the person wouldn't say anything. They would just hang up. And then, you know, after her attack, she still got these phone calls, and they got the idea they should put a, uh, a recording device of some sort on her phone to record somebody calling back. And they got a call, you know, a and call that, you know, he was saying, I'm going to kill you, and he was calling her all kinds of vulgar names. And they, she determined that was the voice of the guy that had attacked her. So they knew that he was calling them after the fact. And that, that happened to several victims.
2: Oh, it did? It wasn't just the one? No,
3: it was, it was many victims. And, in fact, some of them received calls five years later. One of them received a call. Um, she was attacked, I think, in 1977, and she got a call in 2001. Oh All those years later, he was still doing that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling the, the terror that he was into instilling fear in these women.
2: Right, and so, I mean, we obviously know now that he's Joseph D'Angelo, right, at 72, is that correct?
3: Yeah, that's correct. So
2: I think everyone's kind of, again, we're a couple hours into this, everyone's piecing it together, but he was a police officer, right, which is what everyone had kind of speculated before, because he somehow was one step ahead of all the things that they were doing. Was he actually an officer in the areas where this was happening, or he just knew how they operated?
3: So he was an officer in Auburn, California, which I think is... Uh, if I remember correctly, is a little bit outside of Sacramento County, not directly in there. Um, and he was a, an officer, if I'm not mistaken, from 1973 to 1979, um, or maybe it was 76 to 79. Um, but during that time, you, you know, a lot of people said, "How come he knows what we're doing? We're trying to catch him, and he know that he sort of has the upper hand all the time." And a lot of people did. Speculate that he might have been a police officer. Now, he wasn't a police officer right in that, in those towns that he was striking, but he still, you know, may have had some kind of a advantage from, from being a police officer. But, you know, maybe as the investigation unfolds and they release more information, we'll know, you know, more about that. But as now there's not a lot known about it. Mm-hmm. He did um, get fired from his job for shoplifting. and you know, one of the things he shoplifted was dog repellent, which, you know, I don't even know what that is.
2: I, I, was, I saw that and I was like, is there such a thing? <laughs>
3: yeah, I, I'm looking at like a dog repellent. I've never heard of it, but um, he come to find out it's some kind of repellent to keep dogs away from you, which makes a lot of sense because if he's sneaking in all these yards and houses, mm-hmm. there's dogs that might attack him, you know, and, and maybe he thought that would scare him off. And, Another possibility was that he wanted, he knew dogs would be tracking him and he didn't want them to catch his scent. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. figured that would interfere with the scent possibly. Oh. And in a couple of scenes, the dogs did react weird to his scent. So it could have been because he was using that stuff to, to mask his, his smell.
2: But how smart of him or conniving of him were like, even back then, to be worried about getting caught purchasing that. You know what I mean? Like as a police officer, as, as he was purchased, I think it was a hammer and the dog repellent which I don't think would be too weird, but he was obviously, like, aware enough to want to steal it?
3: Well, and and that's the weird thing, because maybe as a thief, he was, you know, as a, a criminal, maybe he just figured, why should I pay for it if I didn't steal it? If he had mm-hmm. bought it, nobody would have probably paid two cents to him. You know, the, he would have still been a cop and still been, still been doing what he was doing. But I, I think he was fired in 1979, and in 1979 is when the... You know, the Easter Rapist moved down to Southern California and started killing people, raping and killing people down in Santa Barbara County and Orange County down there, uh, Ventura County. So those three areas started getting attacked right around the time he stopped being a police officer. So it'll be interesting to see maybe if he had some other kind of job at that point that brought him down there.
2: That was my next question, if we knew what that was. Where... Um, was it in Northern California or Southern California? I remember a lot of people made a big deal about um, papers that were left outside of the, a crime scene. It was like a school paper, or it looked like a book report, and then like a m- map of a neighborhood
4: planning.
3: Yeah, that was Contra Costa County. That was one of his last attacks up there. Um, and one of the scenes they tracked, the dogs tracked the scent and across the field and along some Train tracks, And they lost the scent there, and they, they figured that it was a spot where he had parked at and then left. But right where he was parked, they found some papers on the ground that they think he accidentally dropped. Um, and these papers were, you know, kind of weird things that didn't seem to go together. One of them looked like a sketch of a community, um, like he was planning on building a community or something like that. The other sketch was like a, uh, or the other paper was a sixth grade essay of how bad he hated this six year, sixth grade year of school, and then the third paper was a, uh, an essay on General Custer. So these three things sort of didn't go together, but they were all found mm-hmm. together and they were all on the same kind of paper. Um, so they kept them as evidence. And, and the interesting thing is today somebody just produced some of his handwriting uh, from a document that he signed, and it does. Again, I'm not trained, but it, to me it matches. I, I'm pretty sure that it's it's clear that he did write that stuff and, and dropped it there.
2: So it wasn't a red herring. It very well could have been his stuff, and it, we have no idea what sense to make of it still.
3: Yeah, it might have been just where he went to climb in the car and somehow he was in a hurry to leave and knocked it out and didn't see it, um, and that and that's how they got it. You know, had he not dropped that there, they wouldn't have had that to go on. But, um you know, it's, it's, it's one of the only times he really slipped up and left something uh, at a scene that, that was uh, a pretty big clue.
0: Crime Junkie is brought to you by Vicks NyQuil Severe Honey. It's your honey delicious cold and flu symptom helper, giving you powerful nighttime relief so you can catch some Zs. When you've got nighttime sniffling, sneezing, coughing, aching, and fever, NyQuil Severe Honey is on the case, giving you the best sleep you've ever had with a cold. When a cold keeps you up, try NyQuil Severe Honey Flavor. Use as directed, keep out of reach of children.
4: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn apple card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch subject to credit approval terms apply
2: so when he moved down to Southern California I remember reading that one of his victims they felt like maybe he knew her because it was the way in which she was murdered was just so much more brutal than the others is that is that true or did I mishear
3: well so when he moved down there he had never killed well technically he had been considered the murder of a couple uh, an Air Force couple that was walking their dog, and they suspect that he, they walked up on him as he was prowling in a yard, and he killed them both. Um, so he was suspected of that, but he had never officially murdered anybody. Now, when he went down to Southern California, he started attacking, raping, and murdering the, the couples. Um, and he would shoot them, or he started, even worse, he started bludgeoning them. And with the bludgeoning, you know, he's beating them with force, and and it's more of a personal-style attack. So a lot of times they started thinking that he knows these people, and whoever murdered them is is somebody that knew them because they were bludgeoned in, in a frenzy. And, you know, that's typically, I guess, through investigations, that's typically true. But it remains to be seen if he did know them. Now, maybe he did, and that will come out, too, that he knew some of the victims. But... The last victim uh, in 1986, she was she was beat savagely, um, and it's interesting because there was a five-year gap where he wasn't known to attack anybody uh, during that five years. But when he attacked again in 1986, he really was rough on, on the girl that he murdered, uh, and he beat her probably worse than many of the other people that he that he bludgeoned. And the interesting thing is. You know, 1981 to 1986, there's a five-year gap where he didn't commit any murders. Well, I did some research, and I found out that two of his children, he's got three kids, two of them were born, one was born in 1981 and one was born in 1986. So whether their births or or his wife being pregnant or or something along those lines set him off, I don't know. Uh, But it'll be interesting to see what comes out of, uh, you know, the materials as they release them to see what drove this guy to do what he yeah, did. Yeah,
2: have you? So you obviously have done some digging. Is there anything else that you have learned about this guy? I mean, I know everyone's still kind of piecing it together bit by bit. Yeah,
3: I, I know. I don't know a lot more than most people. I, I got a little advance notice last night uh, before they announced anything, and, and it was weird because I, I didn't know at the time, but I was the first person on Twitter Tweeting, you know, tweeting about this stuff. Wow. And um, and then it just sort of went crazy, and, and it was like, you know, just retweet, retweet. And I'm like, wow, this mm-hmm. is crazy. But then I looked, and I saw nobody else was tweeting about this. So I, I realized that I was the only one that knew about it at that point. Um, you know, but with the information I had which was very limited I knew the guy's age and and some general information about him I didn't know his name at the time I found that out a little bit later um but things got moving pretty fast overnight and then this morning I got a call from somebody and uh it sort of solidified everything that I already had so by this morning, you know, it was pretty clear what was going on. And then at the press conference today, we were able to find out some more information about them.
2: Yeah. And this isn't, I mean, something that you just like picked up overnight. You said you actually were on a panel last year at CrimeCon. Is that right about this case?
3: Yeah. So I'm, I'm friends with some of the victims and, and the surviving victims and family members of those that didn't survive. And, you know, I got to be friendly with them. And, you know, I started wanting to see if I could help in any way. and And one of the ways I you know, volunteered to help was going to CrimeCon and helping them present the case about the Golden State Killer, which was in 2016, 2017 now, actually. Um, and at the time, the case, it's weird, case really didn't have that much national appeal. Not that many people knew about it. Um, and just a year later, this CrimeCon, it's like huge mm-hmm. news, just about everybody knows about it. Um mm-hmm. so in that short one year period the case really you know, the case really exploded. So that's sort of how I got into it and I, I did a lot of research and you know, I had some connections in law enforcement that were investigating it so you know, I was able to get my hands on some stuff to help, you know, tell the the story a little bit better on our podcast. Um so it was a it was a big aid in, in doing that.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, you, you guys have had like incredible episodes and incredible <laughs> interviews it's like nobody else has done, which I think is part of it. I think it's like you know, everyone is pointing to Michelle McNamara's book and but I think it was a a collective thing of from everybody, from everyone still talking about it. Her book, her the podcast, like everyone just caring enough to try and still get tips. I think a lot of times, like I, I know I work with a ton of cold case detectives and the number one thing is if, if people just think no one cares anymore, they don't come forward.
3: I, I think you're right about that. And it's, it's, it was weird to see the amount of people from 40 years ago that retired, you know, they retired, retired 20, 30 years ago, and they're still going out to these shows and being interviewed and trying to help and then the, the family members of victims that were murdered keep telling their story over and over again which I always mm-hmm. you know I thought was brave to be able to go through those emotions mm-hmm. again over and over again and to help tell the story that's what they they've done so everybody doing this effort and then spreading it on social media has really helped move this case to where it's a household name um, yeah. versus what it was and did in year in all ago.
2: of the the talks that you've given and the people that you've talked to, did Joseph D'Angelo's name ever come up, or is this just one of those, like, out-of-nowhere guys?
3: This is an out-of-nowhere guy. From everybody I've talked to, he's he's a real uh, surprise. Um, you know, I, I've talked to a couple people that did a lot of data mining on different people of interest throughout the, the counties where he struck and collected thousands and thousands of names of, of people that might be interest, you know, mm-hmm. possible suspects. And this is a name that nobody had, nobody really had on their radar. Um, and it also turns out, the interesting thing is they're going to they're link him to something called the Visalia ransacking case.
4: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Today,
3: Um, that took place before the Easter rapist crimes. That was in 1973 to 1975 in Visalia, California, and that's a case where the the offender was burglarizing a lot of homes, but not raping or attacking anybody. But he eventually did uh, try to kidnap a girl, and her father tried to intervene, and he was shot and killed. (gasps) Oh, wow! Yeah. So, and then in later. The uh, a police officer cornered the guy, and uh, he tried to kill the police officer by shooting at him. You know, so there are uh, you know, kidnapping charges there, murder, attempted murder there, charges there. If they can positively link to him, he'll probably be facing those charges on top of all the other murder charges that he has now.
2: So he started way before anyone even thought that he did. And there's like a very clear path of escalation.
3: That's It is. And, and the interesting thing is um, when he left Visalia, the last time he attacked uh, was 1975. He had, again, only one attempted abduction, um, no known rapes. And then he showed up June of 76, which is you know about six months later, and he's suddenly raping and he's doing it proficiently. So it's it's almost as if in a six-month you know time frame, he suddenly changed MO drastically. Um, so maybe there are some victims in between where he phased over to that. Um, but one way or another, they think that he did commit the first series of crimes in Visalia, so they're going to try and link them to him as well.
2: Was the last one in Visalia where he tried to abduct the girl and ended up murdering her father, or was that somewhere in the middle?
3: That was Visalia. He he raped or he, excuse me, he uh, abducted her, tried to abduct her, got her out of the house, and her, and the father caught them outside the house, and he was shot.
2: And was that the last case, though, that happened there?
3: In Visalia, no. And they had stakeouts, and, and one of the areas that they staked out, a, a police officer was sort of sitting in a garage waiting for this guy, and sure enough, he shows up there. And the officer, you know, shined his light and said, freeze, and the guy said, please don't shoot me, and... The the officer sort of let down his guard a little bit, and the guy pulled out a gun and shot at the officer and hit him at, hit the flashlight that he was holding, um, and the guy was able to get away. So um, he definitely wasn't afraid to to kill when he needed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he definitely mm-hmm. tried to preserve himself without getting caught. And if he was cornered and he needed to um, to make an escape, he he wouldn't hesitate to shoot somebody.
2: And if I remember correctly, too, so you said there's a six month period before he shows up again and is brutally raping these women and something might have happened in between. But even during the East Area Rapist, when that was going on, there were like weird blocks where he would disappear for a little bit, right? Like for like three months at a time.
3: There were stretches where, you know, a, a two month period, a three month period, a one month period where he wouldn't attack. And then there were stretches where he might attack three times in two weeks. Um, and at one point it seemed like they were coming faster and faster on top of each other and then they suddenly stopped for three months. Um, so that's another thing it will be interesting to see what was going on in his life that caused him to take those breaks. You know, if they can tie some kind of, maybe he was away training for something. Maybe he, um, you know, had an injury. Is, is there anything they can tie to the breaks and the crimes to, um, sort of help tell the story about what he was doing and how he was doing it.
2: Yeah. And do they even know where they're going to try him at this point? I mean, he was all over the place. There's so many different, like, like 10 different counties.
3: Yeah. It, it's, it's sad because all the rates can't be tried. They're there. The statute of limitations ran out on them. And back then it was a very short statute of limitations. I think it was mm-hmm. like five years. Um, oh, yeah. So after five years, they couldn't even arrest him for any of the rates, which is crazy. Um, but all the, the murders, attempted murders, things like that, those charges are still uh, enforceable. Um, so in each of the counties where he's got these murders, he's going to probably face murder charges in all of them. So they started out with Ventura. Um, they moved back up to the, the young military couple that was killed in Sacramento. They're going to charge him with those. And then they're going to move down, I think, to Santa Barbara and Orange County and charge him with murders wow. down there as well. 12 murders altogether that they think he committed. Uh, I think he committed more, uh, but many of those murders are DNA linked, so they know that he committed just about all the ones they're going to charge him with. But I, I suspect there's more out there that they haven't discovered yet.
2: I was just going to ask you, and I never saw a ton of this, but do people think he ever wised up and started not like trying to avoid leaving his DNA? I mean, like, I wonder how long he was active for because it doesn't seem realistic that he would have stopped back in the 80s, he was still very young.
3: Well, and that's, that's the thing. So, um, being in law enforcement, he might've got a heads up that they were coming up with this stuff called DNA because back then they didn't really know anything about DNA. Right. Being in law enforcement, he may have had some kind of insight to know, Hey, they're coming out with this DNA stuff. I got to be careful because he didn't leave any prints. He was very careful about not leaving prints, uh, not leaving evidence except for the one time he may have dropped his papers. Um, but he didn't know about DNA. So he was, Leaving semen all over, you know, the the state, and they were collecting it and getting his DNA sample left and right, and that's what they wound up linking him with. Um, and I think that's what ultimately led to his arrest. I think they they were able to get some success running that DNA through some databases, and then linking it to the right family, and then they track through the family and track to him. And I think that's what's going to come out on how they caught him.
2: Do you know how long ago? Because I, I know they said they got it through um, something that he discarded his DNA. Do you know how long ago that was, though, when they had been like tracking him and collected that, and how long it took to process? My
3: understanding, it was this week.
2: Oh was, wow! Yeah,
3: they 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 suspected it was him. They waited patiently and found some DNA on something that he discarded, and they tested it immediately and got a direct hit, a hundred percent match. Um, so the, it was at that point, they knew they had their guy, and then they went in and, and arrested him and were able to take him into custody.
2: And he was living with his daughter and his granddaughter at the time. Is that right?
3: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know his exact family dynamics. I've heard some mixed things about that. Uh, I know that the kids that he had were older. You know, I know he had at the time, I think he had a 30-year-old daughter, a 35-year-old daughter, if I remember correctly. Um So I think his other kids were were older.
2: And then he, I remember reading at least in one place, and I don't know if this was like the accepted um, profile, but I remember hearing before that they didn't think he would be like a married man. But from what they're saying is his uh, marriage records show that he was married way back in like the early 70s. So he was married like the whole time this was going on. Is that right?
3: Yeah, from my understanding, um, he he did have a long-term relationship, which is, a little bit opposite of why I thought I thought he would be somebody that either never got married or he got married several times because he had marital issues. But apparently he was married, you know, a lengthy time. But one interesting thing I, I found when I went searching through the newspapers when I first got his name, I found a uh, a wedding announcement back in, I think it was 1970 for him, and he was engaged to marry a girl named Bonnie. Um well, something must have happened, they broke up and they didn't get married. But at one of the crime scenes he was whimpering and crying in the corner and the person was listening to him and he said, Bonnie doesn't like it when I do this stuff You know, so that was one of the things that uh you know, what? he was sure that he had the Bonnie and then I found that he had been engaged to a Bonnie. So that's uh you know, something that, that stuck and hit me immediately.
2: I had never even heard that. That's crazy.
3: Yeah, it's it's one of those weird things where you know, if, if you if you don't know all the facts of this case and, and you haven't looked at it, you, it's easy to miss a lot of little clues and things. Um, but having read through just about every report, you know, ten times, you know, there's certain things that definitely stick out that you that you tend to remember, and that was one of them. Do you
2: know um, Bonnie? Did she did she pass away? Did they do you, do we believe that they just called off their engagement, or do we have no idea what happened to her?
3: Yeah, I don't know what happened. I know she did get married to somebody else a couple of years later. Uh, It wasn't to him, it was to somebody else. And I don't know if she's alive or what happened to her after that. I just know she didn't marry him. And then did he
2: go on to marry his current wife? Was it around 73?
3: Yeah, I think it was in the early, uh, I want to say it was 73. Um, And he married her, if I'm not mistaken, in Tulare County. And Tulare County is important because that's uh, where Visalia is. Um, As as a matter of fact, in the record of the marriage, it listed his uh, wife is living in Sacramento County and him is living in Tulare County. And that was 1973 when the Visalia Ransacker attacks were happening. So that's a link that's going to put him in that county, which is probably going to further make the case that he was a Visalia Ransacker. And
2: so weird that it started like right as he got married.
3: Yeah, it it seemed like that's when it did start. Um, Now, because he was prowling and he was out all hours of the night calling victims at night, prowling, attacking... Uh, it, it seemed like I don't know how he went to work. You know, I don't know what shift he worked, but if you're out till you know from dark until six, seven a.m., um, how do you function and go to work after that? Uh, but he was constantly doing that, and it's going to be interesting to see how he accomplished that because it just it, it doesn't seem possible that he could be up the amount of hours that he was uh, and still function and have a full time. Yeah, job. And he obviously
2: was able able to do it well because again nobody was noticing he was able to have you know as healthy of a marriage as you can have with a serial killer because if you know they had kids nobody was thinking it was this guy it's just super strange that he could be so normal and no one would suspect him and it kind of explains why he could hide for so long
3: and and that's maybe part of it you know he wasn't the monster the creepy guy next door he was a, a family guy with a boat in his Front yard, and the normal house, and and grandkids or whatever, um, you know. So that was a, a bit of a facade, obviously. But um, from outward appearances, it, it looked normal. So I think he fooled a lot of people. So
2: before this guy was caught, how many more episodes did you guys have planned of your podcast?
3: Well, we we had twelve planned. We were, we just recorded our tenth one, um, which you know, obviously throws a little bit of a monkey wrench, a curveball to us as to what we're going to do. Um but we think we're just gonna we're gonna finish it out with our normal twelve episodes, but we're gonna do a bonus episode we're probably gonna release in the next twenty four hours or so mm-hmm. just updating the case, saying what's happened you know it's a, it's a big development, and then maybe in the last episode <clears throat> excuse me we'll we'll spend some time uh going over what we know and what we found out about the guy and and make that part of the last. The last yeah, episode. and I'm
2: sure stuff is going to continue to just keep pouring out. Do you guys think you will, you know, once you're done, I know you guys did the Zodiac Season 1 and you kind of wrapped that up, and I know you're now you guys are doing a book, is that right, on the Zodiac?
3: Yeah, so we, we had our, our Season 1 transcribed over into a book form, so that's going to be coming out um, in, in the near future, probably over the summer. Very cool. We're probably going to do the same thing with this case as well. It's a, It's a popular case, and we have a lot of good material, so um, we'll probably wind up doing the same so thing. So do you with think
2: are you going to go the way of serial and just like wrap it up and, and be done with it and not go back when there's trials and stuff? Or are you gonna go more the up and vanish route and kind of follow the trials as it goes on and and kind of keep releasing new information?
3: It would be hard not to go back to it, I think, for me personally. Um, just because again I'm um knowing the victims and being friends with their the victims and some of the, the family of the, the victims. Uh, it's a little bit more personal, so I don't think I would walk away from it. I think I would still do updates on it and and want to share things as, as they develop. So I don't know that I'd ever do a whole season on it again, but you know there might be some episodes left that we can do to um, just update people with what's going on with the case.
2: Awesome. And do you guys have a season three already identified?
3: We don't. And, um, you know, it's at the end of each season, we sort of don't plan way in advance. So we're we're sort of, you know, burned out from, from a long season yeah. as it is. And we, we like to take a week off and just refresh and start thinking about the next project. But with our podcast, we, we do a highly detailed deep dive into a case using a lot of you know, police reports and things like that, you know, people that were there, people we can interview. Um, so we have to find the right case that sort of fits that that uh, model.
2: Yeah, and you guys, are, uh, do you have anyone in California or you guys are out on the East Coast? Yeah,
3: we're, we're on the East Coast. I mean, I have a lot of friends and connections and, and things out on, on yeah. the West Coast in California. Uh, but we're okay, actually so, back so it's got to be East a
2: little Coast. bit more difficult to get like boots on the ground as opposed to having something in your backyard. You guys keep picking California cases, too. you got two in a row.
3: <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the thing. We want to sort of keep it fresh and not necessarily go back to California. Again, it just so happened that the first two were from California. But um, I suspect whatever case we do next is, is not going to be in California. Okay, awesome. uh, just is there anything
2: that, that like I missed that you you want to throw out there? Anything that I didn't cover? I,
3: I, think, we, I think we covered the case pretty pretty thoroughly. I've found an abbreviated version, but, you know, one important thing just to mention, I I think at the end of the day when this guy goes to trial and all the details come out, I I think he's probably going to be America's all-time worst serial offender, uh, you know, predator-wise. You know, he's going to wind up being responsible for hundreds of home burglaries and break-ins, um... 50, at least 50 rapes, probably more out there that never came forward or were unidentified, identified, and he's he's going to have at least you know 13 murders. Um, so and there's probably more beyond that that hasn't been discovered yet. But he's he's going to wind up being, you know, if not the nation's worst serial predator, he's going to wind up being California's uh, worst serial predator.
2: I can I can absolutely see that because I I think you're right. I think there's just so much we don't know yet.
3: Yeah, it's it's just the tip of the iceberg.
2: It'll be, it'll be interesting too, to see kind of where he came from as we learn more about him, his background. And I, I do kind of feel for his family, you know, I mean, God, as, as, you know, a daughter about the same age as his, like to have your world just turned upside down like that, that's got to be kind of shocking.
3: You wake up one day and then the police are taking your dad away and he's the worst serial killer, you know, in, in California history. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I sort of feel bad for them too, you know, as, as awful as what he did you know was and I feel bad for the victims you know I also feel sorry for his his family mm-hmm. so it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and see if they support them or if they're you know if it repulses them and they're they're not even on the side well
2: Mike I appreciate it thank you so much I think this is like I said going to be way better than if I just tried to retell a story that hasn't been my whole life for the last year
3: well, I, I appreciate you having me on. It was uh, you know, good talking with you, and I enjoy the podcast too. So, And
2: then if there's anything we can do for you again in the future, like I love working with you guys. You guys are super awesome. All right,
3: cool. I appreciate it. And I, I, like I said, I like I like the cases you cover. You guys pick some good ones. You know, Tinsley thank case you. is one of my favorite. Um, yeah,
2: not a problem. Well, I
3: really appreciate it.
2: Thank you again, Mike. It was great talking to you.
3: Yeah, good talking to you. Take care. You too. All right, bye. Bye. bye.
1: I really enjoyed this interview so much, and we really hope you did too. Huge thanks to Mike for giving us some time to talk about this case that he's been so passionate about for so long. Stories like this one really make us focus on why we do this show. It is so important to continue to cover cases like Golden State Killer, like Nikki McGowan, like Caitlin Akins and April Tinsley, and all so many other horrific unsolved cases that maybe not that many people know about. The horrible people behind these crimes are still out there. Someone knows something, and eventually someone will be willing to talk if they know people still care. Thank you guys so much for listening, and if you wanna learn more about the Golden State Killer, definitely check out Criminology season two. I, for one, cannot wait to hear the rest of the season. And if you enjoyed this episode, Head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating, and even better if it's a written review, it really helps new listeners find our show, and we also really, really love reading all of your sweet notes. And as always, check out our website, CrimeJunkiePodcast.com, and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll be releasing some exclusive news there here in the next week or so, so that's pretty exciting. And follow us on Twitter, at CrimeJunkiePod, and on Instagram, at CrimeJunkiePodcast. I shall be back next week to give you your next true crime fix. Crime Junkie is written and hosted
0: by me. All of our sound production and editing comes from Britt Prewatt, and all of our music, including our theme, comes from Justin Daniel. Crime Junkie is an Audio
2: Chuck production. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>